Bhumagyanatmilandasyagyanandjanasalakaya Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sohodito Guru Dae Pushpavanto Chitro Sangoto Monuno E Krishna Karuna Sindho Dinavandu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kantara Raganda Nutsute Tapta Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Vrindavanishwari Prashavhanu Sude Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai Shri Varastmi Mahamotsava Ki Jai Kaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Kaur Pramanande Rivo Evening everyone, welcome old timers Seems like we have a, quite a few of you present Feels good um, our program, of course, is just for Radhastamis tomorrow, but we always like to have the devotees arrive early. Usually what we do is in the evenings and in the mornings after the Arctics have a short reading and sometimes discussion. And um, then with regard, that's in the course of every day, but with regard to the festival days, then we usually do the same but adjust the reading to suit the occasion. So I'm going to read a little bit from Shikshastakam, uh, the last verse of Shikshastakam and my commentary on that. And so we'll do that tonight and may comment a bit on the reading. Typically also, uh, we like to, and it's important and it's re- and recommended to us highly, that to approach the Vrindavan Leela, Radha Krishna Leela, that there's a, a secret uh, passage way, and that is through Gaur Leela. So typically here we begin our discussions of Krishna Leela, in this case Radha in particular, with some discussion of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Prabodhananda Saraswati said that Yathayatha Gaura Pararu Vinde Vindeta Bhaktim Krita Punya Rasi Tathata Tod Sarpati Hridi Akasmad Radha Padam Boja Sudambhu Rasi Prabodhananda Saraswati is of course a great devotee from Nadia well from the south I should say but uh, he had much to say in glorification of Nadia and um, a great Gaur Bhakta. So he gave this verse, nice verse. It says, and I, I'll probably discuss it at some length tomorrow, but in brief it tells us that, that by worshipping Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then automatically we have access to the service of Radharani. It will come naturally. So this is the safe course. So through Gaur and this is typical, Gaudiya Sampradaya, that if there are bhajans to be sung, we begin with the Gaur bhajan before Radha Krishna bhajan, 
or the remembrance of the pastimes, remembrance of Mahaprabhu's pastime, and then Radha and Krishna's pastimes, and so forth. So, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu Shikshastakam, of course, is, is all we have from him in, uh, in terms of the written word. It's said that an acharya is uh, characterized by writing. That's what I probably used to like to say, the main contribution of an acharya is, is literary contributions. Of course, he's referring to the fact that to be an acharya and in lineage, you have to establish what the what the take, if you will, on the, on the scripture is. And so there are so many commentaries, for example, on the sutra. The Vedanta Sutra is the first attempt in human history to make sense out of uh, revelation in a systematic way, to theologize uh, systematically about revelation, in this case, revelation being the Upanishads, long before this took place in, in the West on the part of the um, Catholic theologians, the Jesuits, and so forth. Their uh, scholasticism in India. Uh, Vyas did this with his Vedanta Sutra, which tried to take all the Upanishadic revealed insights and, and explain how they all worked together into a system. And uh, they were all pointing in the same direction. They were a coherent body of um, of revelation of the transcendence, if you will, speaking to human society. And of course, then there's a great long history of, a, of, of, of commentaries that follow that. And the commentary on the sutra written by the Acharya would then establish typically a lineage or a, a particular turn in the course of the lineage in terms of direction, nuance, and spiritual sensibility, and so forth. So Acharya is is in this way characterized by writing. But the word acharya, of course, speaks more about the, uh, how you say, the practice that, that speaks louder than precept, the example, I should say, that speaks louder than precept. Achara means behavior. So so who teaches by their behavior, by their example. And this very much characterized Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who we often, inappropriately so, refer to as the acharya lila of Bhagavan Sri Krishna. Krishna coming as the Acharya. He is described as the founder Acharya of the Gaudiya Sampradaya by Jiva Goswami and his um, commentary on uh, Tattva Sandarbha. Founder of his own Sampradaya. A strong, strong statement. Of course, we connect him with, nonetheless, with the, with the Madhva Sampradaya and, and, and so on, but it's really his own insight he came in Madhva Sampradaya to, uh, to Brahman and on through Vyasa. So then he came again as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and gave, put new light into that. And it's a new Sampradaya. So at any rate, he is the Acharya, the founder Acharya of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. And he taught principally, primarily by his example rather than by, his, um, by the written word. Not that other acharyas don't set a good example, so but this was emphasized much by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So we don't have much of a written contribution from him in one sense, but if we plumb the depths of his eight verses in Shikshastakam, we find there's a wealth there that he, he left with us. Those drops, if you will, from the nectar ocean, as it's sometimes described by Prophet, were churned into an ocean of literature, the literary 
legacy of, of, of Gaudiya Sampradaya, which is, of course, an ongoing uh, affair, as it should be. Scripture is not, a, a revelation is not a static thing, but it's, a, it's ongoing and uh, like the law. I've given an example before that Prabhupada used to compare the scriptures to law books. And that, when we first hear that, it gives us some kind of like something to hold on to. Yes, this, this spirituality is not as, so abstract that you can't hold on to. You grab, here's the law, it's, it's written down here. It's kind of securing in a way, and it, 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 it helps to get people involved, to have a handle on the whole thing. Here's how it works. Well, one of the characteristics of Prabhupada was that he kind of like, said it's like this, it's not like that, it's like, and, and that helped people like hold on to it, so to speak, and get, get going and get experience. Of course, as we get experience and, and deep experience, so we find that to play out that analogy further, that the scriptures like the law books, that the law books are, well, kind of not written in stone, so to speak. They're the law, in other words, is determined as time goes by with the new circumstances that present themselves continually on a daily basis. The law is then interpreted. Something never happened before. Now it's happened. Here's what the law has said in the past in similar cases and so forth. And there's a discussion and a determination. And then the new law is written and so forth. So there's scope for continuation. Indeed, there must be, because why? The nature of reality, even in the static, if you will, mundane world, is dynamic, ongoing, and, uh, well, it's exciting. <laughs> and... Uh, and of course, here the way we look at it is there are no problems, there are only service opportunities. So, one thing after another presents itself in the service of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and we rise to the, to the occasion and then understand the scripture, if need be, in relation to that incident accordingly, or something new in society, new insights, new developments, things that weren't known about or thought about before, and so forth. Difficult issues that you can't take one side or the other almost. And, so these things have to be thought out in relation to scripture, and that calls for an ongoing revelation, if you will. So the Goswamis, they wrote so many books, and of course Prabhupada prided himself in one sense of, of having written 60 books, and that then, by way of saying he's proud of being the Sampradaya, there's much to be said here about, about the, this, uh, this subject matter. And indeed there is. Um, there is, a, interestingly enough, there's a surge in, uh, in atheism in the world today with the books like that of Richard Dawkins and others. And there's, uh, there's, a, there's a group of four, they call them the Four Horsemen, Dawkins and, I don't know, Hitchinson or something, and Harris and, and, and another one. And they've been coming out against religion very strongly with the logic and the reasoning of science, empiric evidence and so forth, and trying to dispel superstition and make the case that because of superstition and religious dogma and so forth, people become irrational and on the basis of that irrationality, they don't get along with one another and their wars and problems and so on and so forth. They've coming on very, very strongly in the last, what, few years. And, um, and so on. But interestingly enough, one of them is kind of like, in my opinion, unwittingly a Trojan horse because this fellow Harris has written a book called The End of Faith, and 
as much as he very systematically goes about attacking religious dogma and superstition and, and so forth, he nonetheless reasons that Eastern mysticism is rational and that how can you turn your way head away from somebody who has been living in a cave for 20 years and he's he may be the happiest man on earth or something like that and this is this is some kind of evidence it's something measurable at least his detachment which corresponds with his inner inner life and so forth and science wants to measure everything and um, and, and other body of empiric evidence with regard to the paranormal which leads us to the idea that there's a mind that's independent of brain and of course the transcendent idea that the consciousness is independent of, of mind as well and so um, while he has kind of tried to be generous in a sense and not outright condemn religion his own I think he's the youngest of them to his own like interest is a neuroscientist uh, interest in the, in Eastern mysticism, mysticism, Hinduism. He said something like, "Shankar is, you know, was a greater thinker and realizer than anybody in all of Western, all the Western philosophy, history of Western philosophy." So, not that everybody bows down to that in the atheistic community and so forth, but they like him so much. On the one hand, you know, he's one of the guys who you know really pushing this reasoning of atheism and so forth in the name of a, a, a rational society and, and a harmonious society and so forth, that they tend to, tend to like overlook his interest. And, and then when people criticize it, he backtracks a little bit, you know, but not too much. So it's like a Trojan horse, because once you open the door to that, that there's experience that's transcendental, that there's even that there's a paranormal there's, a, there's a, what we call the subtle material plane and so forth, then you might as well not criticize religion, even though it's worth criticizing in many respects, and it is dogmatic and so forth. And Nonetheless, there may be many schools who incorporate all types of religious dogma happily and don't fight with anybody, and it serves the purpose, their purpose of pursuing experiential, spiritual life. And like we have a lot of ritual and whatnot, ways we do things, and don't sit there and don't sit you know, and maybe superstitious on one level and so forth. And and it is in a sense, it, it is, all kind of stuff in Gaudi Vaishnavism in one sense is, is superstitious, but um, but <laughs> but like Prabhupada would say something like, well, don't clip your fingernails and them fall on the ground because ghosts will come or something like that. You know. so, hmm? Witches. Witches, so don't, don't try to sell that to anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and expect to get too far, but... The way I've reasoned about that, of course, is that it is superstitious, that's true. But it goes on in the Leela. So there's value to it also on a a higher level. That's how all these superstitious things, they all take place in the Leela. It's a wonderful place. And, uh, but in this world, of course, what we need to take from that Leela is the the essential tattva, the truth that it speaks to us about, about how we should apply ourselves in the world today that we might attain the bhava and the prem that it that fuels that leela and really makes it go around what it's really all about. The rest of it, of course, is all trappings. The varnashram and the leela, for example, is just a trapping. 
it's transcendental to Varnashram, but the Varnashram appears there. And the girls are over here and the men are over there and so forth. But that's all in the Leela. We don't take that from here and think and assemble all those parts and think that we've constructed the Leela here. No, we've got to take the Bhava from there, the Prema from there, the essence from there, the Tattva, the truth from there, the implication of the Leela as it plays out for us in the life of a sadhaka as a practitioner. Apply ourselves, then we can get Bhava, the goal of Sadhana Bhakti and cultivating the Baba, the Prem, and then enter the Leela, and all those things will be there, not in the forefront, but in the background, in the, as part of the, the whole in, in, in environment. So, so at any rate, um, in the midst of this atheistic thrust, here's this, this uh, also this educated and rational interest in, in Eastern mysticism and Hinduism, and of course it's the non-theistic Hinduism, of Shankar and and the Buddha Buddhism and so forth, but this is this is the beginning. This is the beginning only of a consciousness, if you will, kind of revolution. If you're going to go from materialism to Buddhism, it's a big jump. If you go from there to Shankar, it's a big jump. And to go from materialism to Mahaprabhu, that's a huge jump because there we're talking about the consciousness of consciousness, and that is, of course, what Radha is all about. Radha exemplifies the prem that is the consciousness, if you will, of Brahman, the, conscious, the supreme consciousness, what makes Brahman dance, what makes, what's what he's all about. Krishna is Brahman, the absolute, but influenced by the Shakti. That Shakti is hardly manifest in Brahman. Therefore, it's still, it's quiet, it's not dancing. And that may be an easy target then, when we're dancing here, following one thought after another, the mind is keeping us dancing in the way that our feet are getting pretty tired <laughs> and there's no, there's no rest. So a fixed, non-moving, static, resting place may seem dynamic in comparison to the material life which is round and round and round and, and round. It's kind of, you know, what did she say? And seasons go round and round and ponies go up and down and so uh, this is material life. It's going around, but it's going around in a circle. And uh, so we're not getting anywhere is the point. So to have a static kind of rest is very dynamic. That's why I like to say if you go from zero numbers or negative numbers to zero, you've kind of gone somewhere. It's a big zero. It's a, it's a positive zero. But of course, Gaudi Vaishnavism goes into positive numbers then all the way up to 108. And... So it's a big jump to go from everything is matter, a monistic, materialistic outlook, everything is matter, to the Gaudiya Vaishnava idea of, of Vachintibeda Beda and all that it, it, it implies. But at any rate, this is our topic. It comes up particularly here when we talk about Radha, kind of the, the, the consciousness of consciousness, love, the brain that she... Uh, embodies that makes Brahman alive and that static Brahman that's dynamic from our point of view here in this material realm becomes dynamic on that side and God is uh, is is the dancer that Nietzsche said he you know if, if he existed he that's what he'd be doing well he does and, and that's what he's doing and she's the influence behind that so Mahaprabhu, of course, personifies her, her, her love, and as an acharya, he taught about this 
by his example, because basically the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was an overflow of his, Krishna's, attempt to experience that. So he's all about experience. He's only pursuing the experience of Radha's love. And the overflow of that, of course, is the, is the teaching that his example spoke about to those who were close, near and dear to him. Or we could say who came with him, you know, for the purpose of helping him pursue his experience, Radha's attendance, and who at the same time, the Goswamis, then wrote about that, reasoned about that experience and example of Mahaprabhu. So he wasn't an acharya in a sense of writing a commentary on the sutras and whatnot, but he certainly was by example, and his followers wrote about him a lot. He wrote these eight verses of Shikshastakam. It's not much, but there's a lot there. And they, as probably just say, churned those drops of nectar into an ocean of literature, and that body of literature has to, of revelation, has to continue in an ongoing way to um, shed light on this... Um, a very high idea that at the same time is so close to our humanness. It comes so close. It, it so much confirms. It's so it's so intuitive. I should I want to say, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is not the least bit counterintuitive. It's completely intuitive. It, it you look deep in the human heart and whatever you intuit, life should be about. Gaudiya Vaishnavism confirms it. It just says center it over here. That's all. And any other form of Vedanta is. To one extent, and it's slightly counterintuitive. It, it it denies without confirming. I mean, in the same way, to the same extent, even the forms of Vaishnavism, they deny the falsity of material love. They they confirm real love, but they don't take it to the full extent that we experience it in human life: love for friends, love for children, lover and beloved, romantic love, and so forth. That's that's. It doesn't have a place there. So this is really human-centered in that sense. It's very intuitive, Gaudi Vaishnava. That's why Prabhupada would say things like, oh, I came here to, just to tell you what you've forgotten or something like that. It's, it's there. It's intuitive. As we explain, your human life being a reflection of that. So what's in the cause... The effect, what's in the effect, is in the cause. So there's something to the. If we examine the cause, the effect very carefully, we'll be able to trace out something about the cause. That's why we can speak about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in a very universal way. We can take common sense and universally accepted principles and explain the the. Um, the significance of them, the ramifications of them, such that we end up in Goloka Vrindavan. And like the very idea that, for example, selfishness is unbecoming. I mean, nobody will disagree with that. Even people who are selfish themselves you know, are against selfishness on, on, on some level <laughs> when they see it in others or something. <laughs> so it's a universal uh, principle. Now we can just speak about that in such a way as it will the ramifications of that, applying that. It's unbecoming, so we shouldn't be selfish. It takes us to Goloka Vrindavan. So it's a very uh, natural um, natural uh, philosophy, very intuitive, I want to say. And so, in a sense, Mahabharata was teaching this. He's not saying much about it. He's just, he's, 
if you look at his major uh, conversions, for example, his conversions of Prakashananda Saraswati, of Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, these were huge conversions. Sarvabhoma was a huge conversion. I mean, he, he, he's listed in the Encyclopedia Britannica today. He was a huge logician in Indian history, mathematician and logician. And, uh, and Mahaprabhu converted him into a, into a, you know, this, can imagine a big logician, logical guys like taking Richard Dawkins, one of these big atheists, and turning them into a devotee. It's like turning the world, and the guys took chanting and dancing in the dhoti, you know, after giving lectures all over the world about uh, the, the, how, how rational atheism is and so forth. I mean, Shankar's is a kind of a kind of a non-theistic uh, Vedanta, and that's what Sarvabhoma, according to Krishna's Kaviraj and Chaitanya Charitamrita was, was about. So Mahaprabhu's conversion of him was huge. And then Prakashananda Saraswati and Banaris and Venkatabhatta, the, the leading head priest of the Ramanuja Sampradaya and Sri Rangami, were big, big, big people, so many of them. And Mahaprabhu converted them very simply. I mean, he really converted Sarvabhoma by being quiet, not saying anything. And what happened is that Sarvabhoma then kind of became nervous, like you're not saying anything. And Mahaprabhu created this kind of teachable moment, so to speak, and then he just said, well, I heard everything he said, it just don't, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Then he explained one verse and so forth. And, and with Prakashananda Saraswati, he basically ignored him. He came to Banaris to do Sankirtan, and they wanted to bring him in the fold of the sannyasis and straighten this renegade sannyasi out who was like singing and dancing emotionally with musical instruments. This isn't the business of a sannyasi. He should sit, study Vedanta, become sober. Mahaprabhu ignored him. Of course, then he arranged for Brahma to, to drag him there nonetheless and invite him there. And then he sat humbly right where they kept the shoes and they, they just became attracted to him. Eventually he spoke a little something. Venkatabhati convinced him. He converted him by joking with him about why, why the chaste wife of Narayan Lakshmi is going with another man, Krishna. He said, you must be joking. <laughs> and then it, so they, they played it out like this, and then he was converted, and so forth. So he didn't say much; he did much. And, and the teaching also is, is it, it's, it's incumbent upon us to teach by example. And with regard to what I'm saying about the world today and this atheistic thrust, and then this, within the context of that, interestingly enough, this inroad into Eastern mysticism and so forth, what's really lacking. And this is what they'll come out and say as well. Where is the influence of God, if there is a God? Or if there's a supernatural, however you want to describe it, where is its influence? You say it influences human society, then it interacts with human society. And if it interacts with human society, we should be able to measure it. And so, where is it? And of course, the answer is, you know, where is God? I mean, where is he after all these years? People have been talking about him, making up stories about him. Well, where is the guy? Where is his influence in the world? Where are all the miracles? Prabhupada pointed to us once on stage in Hyderabad in uh, 1975 when somebody, huge crowd, said, you know, have you performed any miracles? And Prabhupada said, these boys here, <laughs> was a few of us there, they've given up interest in in this goes and the sex life. He said, that is my miracle. <laughs> so, idea is what? Where is the influence of God in the world? 
it's there in the Vaishnavas, in the saints, actually. That's where it is. And you can measure it. You can measure their detachment. I think there's some objectivity to that. You can measure their detachment from the world. And, and you can measure their influence on the lives of other people. Look at the influence of Prabhupada on the lives of so many of, so many of his disciples. It changed them, you know, forever, practically. So there is, this is, this, is the, this is the measurement. And the point is, of course, with regard to Mahabrabhu being an Acharya and teaching by example and so forth, is that evidence, if you want to bring forth evidence to convince these people of a transcendent reality, let's just, you know, stop, start there, then your example, that will be the evidence. That is an evidence. Unfortunately, our tradition, like many others, has a pretty, you know, not the best track of good evidence. We have evidence to the contrary. <laughs> that it doesn't work and so forth. But, it, but that shouldn't be dismissed, really, because it's a high ideal. It's a very high ideal. And if you understand that, you make that point, then there should be, amongst reasonable people, room for error. I think they tried. They tried for that. If there's one person who's an example, then that's enough. If others tried, went there, got something, can't give it up, talk about it, as best they can, however inadequately, to, to, the, to the satisfaction of the reasoning of others. Nonetheless, the one person, that's why Prabhupada said, my mission will be successful if I can make one person appear to Bodhi. Going, you know, sorting through so many. And they're all, so all the others, they get Sukriti, they get Shraddha, they get Prak, they get involved. They're on their way too, but, but it's a rare thing. Very rare thing. So we can expect, even, I mean, in, in material society, if someone tries for something and is that's hard and it's unsuccessful, we, we don't, you know, we, we have some, we, we understand, we, we're generous, something like that. The problem is, of course, in religion and in spirituality, people try and then they fall, they make mistakes, and, and then it's, it's so vital to people because people are giving their everything for that, and then they feel cheated and, and so on. But, but nonetheless, we have to look and see what is what it, what what the person went after, how they tried, what was their ideal. That's why Puja Patridomarsh used to like to say that that Mahaprabhu would not judge people. It's generous to say, let us not judge people by their past, but by their present. Forget about the past. Let's judge them by the present. But Mahaprabhu would say more than that. Let's not judge them by the present. Let's judge them by the future, by their ideal what they cherish in their heart, even if they can't fully apply themselves in relation to that at the moment. Because if they keep that ideal in their heart, that's what they'll attain. We should judge them by that. And this, prem, prayojan, this is a high, 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 high ideal. So it's understandable. There may be some, it may take a while. There may be some mistake along the way and so forth. But anyway, if we have one one person, we have more than one. If we have one, that should be enough evidence. But this is the evidence. This is the practical and empirical evidence of God's influence in the world. You ask where it is, here it is. And you can look at Prabhupada and you may not appreciate him philosophically and so forth even. It's possible. And his books were written a while back and they, don't, they aren't contemporary, you know, now, 40 years later. So many things have come up and happened, and so forth. And Prabhupada, of course, was speaking in the in the writing in the '60s and '70s with the background of you know of India, you know Bengal, and 
in Calcutta, so he brings those sens- sensibilities with him and so on. Of course, historically speaking, I mean, practically academically speaking, no historian will ever judge a person and their teaching out of the past by things that they said in the past necessarily with regard to social norms. And so that's just understood. Abraham Lincoln, for example, great liberator of the slaves, you know, who advocated and successfully brought in the abolition, also wrote, of course, we'll, they'll never be on juries or anything, and they'll have to live separate from us and uh, regarding the Negro people and, and so on. If you read his statements, you'll think, man, there couldn't be a more racist guy than this. You know, he'd be thrown off the radio show, you know, and lose his job, you know, entirely, you know. But and he was the leader of, the abol- of uh, abolishing the slavery at, at the time. So anyway, some people get caught up in, in, in such, and, and Prabhupada was, was more, more of a, to be honest with you, he was more of a, of a, a person just gushing with, with faith and, and ecstasy than he was a philosopher. And he wrote a lot of books, but he did it in the con- context of traveling around the world and starting a mission and, and you know, entering a room of 100 people and just filling them with bliss. It was extraordinary. Enter an airport and they just become blissful. Like, wow, that's it. So, whatever he writes. <laughs> Not that he didn't write good things. And, and so, but he didn't, you know, have the time to go through it really systematically. Like in Acharya, for example, it started, you know, Ramanuja Sampradaya or Tattva Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami, something like that, very systematically. He called his purports his emotional ecstasies. You know, he would reflect on the verse in relation to his mission a lot of times and what was going on and so forth and in the world and he'd and he'd write about it. It doesn't always take you from verse to verse and chapter to chapter in a systematic way and, and so forth. So he was a more of a of a of an ecstasy person than a scholar. Not that he wasn't scholarly, but uh, but comparatively. And he had huge influence on people. He he brought them ecstasy, really. He uh, he changed the lives of so many people. So this is tangible evidence. Of course, you have to analyze what that is then. And we have to show that, what that is. That it was a good influence, and it was positive. And by understanding it now, philosophically and rationally, and and so on. So at any rate, this is the way if you, to help others, and thereby yourself, understand all these things, is to put it into practice. Teach by example. This is what Mahaprabhu did more than anything, more than writing. And example, as they say, as I started, speaks louder than, uh, than precept. But the precept is here. Anyway, in H. Locus, I better start the reading. And the last verse, Mahaprabhu has attained his ideal. Haslishiva padratam penashtumam adarshanam marmatam korotuva tatatava vidhatulam pato mutprananapastu saivanapara. He may embrace me, devoted as I am to his feet, or he may torment me and break my heart by hiding from me. Being a playboy, he's free to do whatever he likes, for he alone is the Lord of my life. So here we have Mahaprabhu has attained his ideal. He's fully entered into the um, the prem of Radha 
In Asakti he began, Ainandatanu Jikinkaran Patitamam Vishame Bhavambuddha. He began to identify the, with the object of his, his um, love. That Lord of his life, Pranishwar, had uh, reified it, had become concrete, in for, taken form and shape in his heart, the son of Nanda, Ainanda Tanuja. He's, he's really saying there, I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. This is the village girl, gets married to a young man. She goes and lives at his father's house with him. She enters into their family. So he's saying in the mood of a Braj Sundari that I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. It means I want to marry Krishna. I want to be the maidservant of Krishna. This is my, my ideal. And so he enters there from Asakti into Bhava Bhakti. He's cultivating that. And here in the last two verses of Shikshastakam, he actually successful. Bhava Sadhana is about Sharanagati, Shraddha, Sharanagati, faith and its corresponding surrender. Means Sharanagati, Sarvadharman, Puritya, Mamikam, Sharanagati. This is the beginning of the Bhakti, not the end. That's the beginning. You have requisite faith in Krishna, in Sarvadharma, Pratyadja, no other faith in any other god, goddess, or any other obligation, and so forth. And from there, then, Mami come, shaking shelter of me. So this this is the outward expression of Shraddha, this Sharanagati, surrender. Not taking shelter of anyone else. The, the, the Swarup, Swarup Lakshan, of Sharanagati is varanam tata. Krishna is my maintainer. Krishna is taking care of me. I don't have to work. <laughs> of course, we wear labor of love and so forth to serve him, but he take care of me. Whether it be, sometimes it may be, it may be little, apparently. Pujapachita Maharaj used to say sometimes in their mat, or Govinda Maharaj's success said sometimes we didn't have enough rice to go around. There were times like that. He said he used to go to the trees. He wanted to leave sometimes. He would go to the trees and they asked permission. None would give him permission, so he would stay. It was hard, in other words. In Prabhupada's mission, we had hard times, too. They weren't, usually there was food on the table. Although I remember we used to leave off a of wax paper plates for a while. There was eight chickpeas, one piece of ginger, <laughs> and the plate was melting on the floor without oatmeal. Uh, so you could eat the wax paper too if you were hungry. <laughs> I can remember some hungry days, but, but pretty much I, I remember when I joined them, it was like apples and raisins we had every morning, some dal and some some rice, and we would and we were living for that Sunday feast, you know, which uh, everything. Anyway, so uh, sometimes it may be difficult, but it grow, we can grow from that also. So. But Krishna take, maintains his devotees. So this is the primary, central characteristic of Sharanagati, this kind of embracing. Uh, Krishna is my maintainer, so I'll take shelter of him, no one else. So from Shraddha and Sharanagati and Sadhana Bhakti, we become successful. We start to feel, we start to get the tangible results as negative things go away and arthas are leaving. Our practice becomes steady. We get a taste now, coming from the other side. We become attached to bhakti and then attached to the SSA to the object of bhakti that 
it crystallizes in a particular form and appears in our heart. The Lord appears in the heart, corresponding with our budding sentiments. Then sadhana is successful, and we attain bhava, a, a ray of the sun of prema, and then churning that bhava, bhakti, in another kind of practice, a more focused practice relative to the sentiment that's dawning in our heart, and then into prema. So Mahaprabhu has shown us the whole way, and his attachment, wanting to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj, means I want to, I want to marry Krishna. He's in the mood of Radha. Of course, we're not, even in Madhuras, we're not going to marry Krishna, but we'd be a handmaiden of Radha. That's a whole other topic. We'll have to get to that. But Mahaprabhu was in her. He's he's a successful now. This is Prem. This these last two verses, the final verse. He's in Prem. He's successful. This is Radharani speaking. This verse. We don't need a commentary about Radharani. He didn't really write a commentary about her. She's right here speaking. <laughs> this is her writing this poem through the hands of Mahaprabhu, coached by Ramananda and 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 Swarup Damodar, Bishaka and Alita Gopis. They're coaching him. They know Radha, you know, perfectly. So this is yeah, this is very deep. We can't start here and talk to the atheists with this. They won't get it. I was reading Fritz Madhav Mahotsa with Jeeva Goswami, derived somewhat from one of Rupa Goswami's Lila Grantas and Padma Purana, Matsya Purana, story of Radharani becoming the queen, Vrindabhaneshwari, the Abhishek, the crowning of Radha, and so forth. And I think, well, you can't give the atheist this book. <laughs> it's just about young girls, you know, how they wear their makeup and. And uh, and all such details of of the intricacies of the arrangements for the Abhishek and and so forth. It's not deeply philosophical. Let's put it like that. But philosophy ends in aesthetics, I think, in beauty, in love, and and in, and in charm. So, but here, Radharani graciously speaks through the pen of Mahaprabhu. Philosophically and and beautifully and aesthetically, as as well profoundly, as well as beautifully. So, read something from the commentary in the previous verse of Shikshastakam, Mahaprabhu tasted the ocean of Radha's Mahabhav in waves of separation from Krishna. In this verse, he tastes the high tide of Radha's Mahabhav in union with Krishna. So these are the two banks of the river of Prem. Vipralamba and Samboga, union and separation. Love is, in other words, not static, but dynamic. It's moving. Right? I said before, in this world we move in pursuit of love, and we cannot be content until we get love, until we find love. And when we find it, then we just sit down and rest. No, soon we find it, we start moving again. Because that's the nature of love. It's a different kind of movement now. A love-centered movement, a love Love lost, movement in search of love. We can't be content. We find love. At last, I found my love. But then that's a roller coaster, isn't it? And it's it's it's. He loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. And this is how Krishna lives his life. She loves me. She loves me not. Talking to Subal. She loves me. She loves me not. What is it? Which is it? Hmm? I think she loves me not. Subal. No, she loves you. It's okay. This is the nature of romantic love. Sanatana Goswami says. In his Brihad Bhagavatamrita, a commentary, 
that amongst all the gopas, coward friends of Krishna, everyone thinks, every one of them thinks, Krishna loves me the most. Jansanatha Prabhu says, and every one of them is right. That's their thinking. They have a kind of a confidence. Vishrambha is the pradhan, the, the, the mool, the root, the source of that kind of, they have a kind of a confidence. But romantic love is a lacking of, has a lacking of that kind of confidence. And, it's, and the, he says, the gopis always think, I don't know if he loves me. Does he love me? <laughs> and in the relation to them, of course, the Krishna's thing, does she love me? She loves me, she loves me not. And some of his attendant friends, of course, are counseling him in this regard, and some are counseling Radha's friends, counseling her, and, and there's a crossover as well, as well. Girls counseling Krishna, and then boys counseling gopis, and, and so here we are, you know, deep in the romantic life of the, of, the, of the absolute, the heart of transcendence, the consciousness of consciousness, if you will. The consciousness of consciousness, the shakti. Brahman is, is shakti. Brahman is consciousness. And it has shakti, and that's a, what's, what it's about. It gives it life. It gives it shape. So here we are. Anyway, as I say, deep in the midst of that, and we learn of a dynamic absolute where the goal post is always moving. You've arrived there and there's still distance to go. One time, sitting on the simple but profound and beautiful veranda of Pujapad Sridhamars in his moth, he gave a beautiful talk and spontaneous talk as he would. And then one of the devotees afterwards said, well, we are very completely satisfied with your talk, Guru Maharaj. Completely satisfied. And Maharaj Gurmarsh turned and said, Completely? Satisfied? Completely? Filled up? Is it possible? <laughs> I have not reached that. <laughs> I don't think that it's possible. And he goes off, you know. <laughs> the nature of the thing, you know, you cannot, never, never satisfied. It's satisfying, but, you know, it, but, but it goes on and on nonetheless. It's dynamic. Idea. That's the whole idea of Leela, as opposed to the movements of karma that are senseless, and then the stillness of Brahman. Leela then is, is that same absolute moving and dancing. Shankar would say something like, well, if you're satisfied, why move? Sit. But then we would say, well, if you're really satisfied, after sitting, you get up and you start dancing, not out of any need, but out of fullness. You're so full, you're so satisfied, you start to celebrate that, and, and then it overflows, and so forth. So this is, this is Leela. And this, again, was what Mahabharata was about. Why didn't he write much? Because he came to experience. In the context of the experience, then the teaching is going out. So, so the ideal, the prayogen, the frame, it's a moving thing. It moves between union and separation, union and separation. Well, separation is central to entering frame. Its value is often considered to be the role it plays in enhancing loving union, as Thakur Bhaktivinoda writes. The pleasure felt in union cannot be properly appreciated without the experience of suffering and separation. That is the function of Vipralamba. Thus, separation while granting entry into Krishna Leela also remains a permanent aspect of the drama, 
of divine play serving to enhance the desired union with Krishna. Accordingly, even after embracing Radha, Krishna may disappear and break her heart, only to reappear and embrace her once again. Although separation and union complement one another, the highest reach of Radha's Mahabhav is experienced in union. Rupa Goswami calls this Madanakya Mahabhav. It's characterized by the ability to simultaneously taste many contradictory spiritual emotions in relation to Krishna. Madanakya Mahabhav is the exclusive experience of Radha who is Mahabhava Swarupini. The personification of the highest love experiences every facet of the brilliant blue sapphire like Krishna. Indeed, she tastes love in ways that even he is unfamiliar with. This fi the final verse of Shikshastakam illustrates this love. Sri Krishna Das Kabiraj Mahashai writes that it was originally spoken by Radharani. As Gore repeated Radha's verse, he tasted her Mahabhav and elaborated on it as if in conversation with his associates, Ram Roy and Swarup Damodar, in their Brajlila identities as Vishaka and Lalita. So he's, he's attained. He's talking to Swarup Damodar and Ramananda Roy as if they're, in terms of their Lila identities in Krishna Lila, as, as Lalita Saki and Vishaka, and, and this is the voice of, of Radharani coming from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself. This, what's said in, in this verse can all be analyzed from Ujbal Nilmani in great depth. What she's saying, why, what sentiments are being expressed, what exactly. Rupa Goswami took in his book Ujbal Nilmani the um, Madhura so that he explained briefly in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and then elaborated on it in great detail by explaining different nuances of Madhurya Rasa, labeling them, this is this aspect of this Bhav and this one, within the Madhurya Rasa, all the different heroines, all the different types of gopis, their different sentiments, all these new, labeling them with aesthetic language, and then giving examples, Leela examples, of what uh, what he's talking about. This is Chitra Jalpa, and here's an example. And this is called such and such, and this is an example. So this can be analyzed, this last verse, in terms of Uchman and money. I haven't done that in this, this commentary. It's, it, was, it would have been a little, uh, I, th I thought it a little too much at the time. And, um, and Manjari Bob's not my specialty either. But um, that's what this verse is about. I'll just read a little bit. Sri Gorhari's elucidation on his final verse of Shikshastakam consists of 13 simple Tripati Bengali verses. Both Gore's verse and elaboration, which we find in Chaitanya Charitamrita, stresses the underlying spirit of Mahabhav and only touch on the complexity of Mahabhav's nuanced spiritual emotion. Thus, for the most part, Gore spoke of the highest ideal in a way that the least qualified could take advantage of it. Let us try to do so. So this is really wonderful. And it's a, 
as I say, this, what this is about, you could go into Ujma Nilamani in depth and analyze it, people be lost in all these terms and, and uh, whatnot. And, um, and without real deep interest in Manjari Bhav in a qualified sense, then they probably get bored with it as well. So um, here, Radharani is speaking to us through the lotus mouth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna has attained what he came to, to to taste, to experience, what he couldn't, what he found lacking in his own leela, the measure of the love of Radha that he didn't have experience of. So he's speaking to us about it, but in a way, interestingly enough, that we can draw philosophical implications from for us in our life as practitioners, practical things that we can take from it. That's very wonderful. In other words, to to speak about a lost in ecstatic love, but to talk about it in such a way that we can draw something from it that's, that we can, such that we can implement it in our lives as practitioners and grow in, in the direction of this. A little different, but something, uh, this reminds me of something about Prabhupada, who I like to say was very much preoccupied on a high level of Krishna consciousness, but rather than speak about his pre- what he was preoccupied with specifically, he spoke about it in a more general way that others could take advantage of it. This is a great thing because people like to speak about what they're preoccupied with. And he kind of took himself down, in a sense, from what he was preoccupied with and spoke about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in a way that we could get a handle on it, begin to understand it, and and uh, get involved and so forth. And that's a great characteristic of a person, to do that. That's a great uh, sacrifice. It's almost like he you know, left Vrindavan, you know, to come to, and he did physically, he left Vrindavan to come here. And so spiritually, I want to say also in terms of his preoccupation internally also, I watched him a number of times talk to me and just wrestle himself down to pay attention to my my questions and and give answers and so forth. Very uh, moving example of uh, of compassion. So in in effect, um, Radha through the, through Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has, has done that here in a way, and not quite the same. But he's spoken about this highest ideal in a way that we can also draw some practical insights from it for our practicing life. After all, the subject is Ujbalil money. This isn't so this is if it's for practicing life, it's for bhav bhakti. Because if you're going to cultivate bhava, you have to have some bhava. First to be sharnagata, first surrender. And surrender means you be exclusive in your devotion, no other influence or interest. Then you can think about bhava. So sadhana bhakti up is is about sharanagati, about surrender. It's about it's about submission. Bhava bhakti is characterized by longing. There's an overlapping of the two. There's some longing in sadhana bhakti, and there's certainly submission in bhava bhakti. But we also find submission takes on a funny form. Kind of people are forward. Mother Yasoda is chastising him. Cowards are wrestling with him. Radharani's telling not letting him in the in the grove, but. They're fully surrendered there. The stage of Sharanagati was erected long, long, long ago in terms of the, the progress, the progression of spiritual practice. So 
So, mukhs like uj will need money, therefore bhava bhakti. People say, well, because bhakti's ancestral philosophy, they emphasize reading those books, uh, uj will need money, for example, um, or let's say Gita Govinda. So, someone will make the argument, well, why did Rupa Goswami write them then, if we're not supposed to read them? And it's, it's not that we're not supposed to read them, but there'll be a time when they'll be of value to you, useful to you. And if it's all about churning bhava into prema, then you might want to have a little bhava to, to, to do that. And then meanwhile, there's, a, you know, there's some value in reading books about sharanagati and surrender, getting, getting that in, in place. Anyway, here we go. From, from Udmil Nilmani speaking to us on a, on a lower level. That's really generosity, kindness, compassion. Mahaprabhu's Bengali verses begin with the words, Ami Krishna Podadasi. This is how he speaks through the pen of Kaviraj Krishnadas. When he, he speaks the verse and then he begins to talk about it to Sarup Damodar and, and Ramananda Roy. He says, Ami Krishna Podadasi. I'm a maidservant at the feet of Krishna. This statement is central to Mahaprabhu's entire elucidation because it reveals that Mahaprabhu has completed his sadhana of identifying with Radha's prem. Now He now completely identifies himself as a maidservant of Krishna. This identification began in the fifth stanza. I, didn't realize, I haven't read this since I wrote it, so I've already said some of these things. Forgive me, but we're repeating it now in the, in the, in the reading. This identification with the Prima of Radha, began in the fifth stanza of Shikshastakam, in which Mahaprabhu humbly prayed for divine service. Once attaining his ideal, now, his humility has only increased. Such humility is one of the characteristics of Radha's Prima, for although Radha is the supreme goddess, she conceives of herself as a mere maidservant. Although there is nothing greater than her love, it is nonetheless devoid of pride. This is one of the characteristics that Krishna Kaviraj has given of her prem in uh, earlier on Chaitanya Charitamrita, maybe in the fourth, fourth chapter of the uh, Adi Lila. Radha Krishna Pranaya Vikadiladini Shaktirasmad, where he explains that, that verse. And in that context, such intubated Veda, Radha and Krishna, one and different and so forth, he explains her love, that it's, uh, although there's nothing greater than it, it's nonetheless devoid of pride. And although it's pure, it's crooked. It looks otherwise. And these are some of the characteristics of her prem. Mahaprabhu's opening words also highlight the essential nature of Radha's love and that of love in general. Love is about service, about giving without concern for getting. The mystery of life is that while love involves selfless giving, it makes one whole. Sri Radha is the best example of this in religious history. Her love is selfless to the extreme, yet it makes her so whole, so complete, that God feels incomplete without her. Jai Sri Radhe Ki Jai. So we'll stop there. Sri Radha Astami Mahotsavatiti Ki Jai. Sri Goranga Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Nitamapu Ki Jai. Jai Sri Bhakti Branta Sami Prabhupada Ki Jai, Bhakti Rachak Siddha Dev Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai. 
भक्ति सिद्धांत सृष्टिता को प्रभुपात की जाए भक्ति विनोद परिवार की जाए और भक्तावृंद की जाए को प्रेमानंदे हरे हरि भो